Hello, and welcome to the Rooted in Reliability podcast, your plant performance podcast, where we dive deeper into asset management techniques and know-how. I'm your host, James Kovacic, and I will be your guide to achieving industry best practice. The Rooted in Reliability podcast is here to provide you with the insights to improve plant performance and deliver bottom line results to your organization. In case you missed the last episode, you can find the Rooted in Reliability podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on the reliability.fm network. Don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Now let's dive into today's topic. It's my pleasure to welcome back Simon Yagers to the podcast. Welcome back, Simon. Thank you, James. So Simon, you are the founder of Samotics. You know, we've previously been on to talk about um, the capability gap, online monitoring for electrical systems. We've talked about a bunch of different pieces here, all kind of growing into, you know, the adoption of technology, how we're successful with that and so on and so forth. And, you know, as we were talking offline, we kind of discussed, well, it might be worthwhile to help people understand how technology evolves on its own because that may give us some insights to why does it adopt or not get adopted? How do we make it easier to use, easier to deploy, all those different things. So here we are. Although, yeah, yeah, I love this topic. So uh, thanks for having me on. Excellent. So before you, we dive into it, you want to give everyone a brief introduction to yourself, background, intro to Samotics, that type of thing? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so my name is Simon Jagers. I'm one of the founders of uh, Samotics back in 2015. Um, my professional career has been spent in technology, uh, usually evolving around either uh, making data, storing it, or processing it. Uh, and so for the past uh, six, almost seven years now at uh, Somatics, where we provide condition monitoring technology based on electrical signature analysis. So what we essentially do is we analyze data to help our clients to work better, safer, smarter, more reliable, that sort of thing. All right. Excellent. So, you know, when we talk about technology evolution, all right, is it similar to how people, animals, reptiles evolve as well, or is it something completely different? I think so. I think it is very similar, uh, certainly to the extent that they evolve according to a similar process. Uh, there's, there's almost an algorithm involved. Um, and you know, if you look, for instance, uh, at, at birds, right? We all love birds. So consider two blue birds in a green forest. And if they mate, they, they'll get a, a blue young bird. Uh, but sometimes in that process, in that sort of that copying of DNA, if you will, there is an issue or if something goes wrong. Now, if they their young ones turn out to be green, then those green animals will, or those green birds will be less visible against that backdrop of green trees, um, which then means that they'll likely be less um, easily caught by predators. So they have an advantage over their blue parents. And if those green young ones get green baby birds, so that that greenness is retained, then slowly but surely, because they are um, better equipped to survive in that green forest with their green feathers against the background, they will grow in population at the expense of the bluebirds. And that so there's an algorithm involved. And and um, when applied, it is it is often referred to as universal Darwinism, which basically says you have mutations, something changes, 
you have selection. So the environment sort of selects whether this mutation is a better fit for the environment at that present moment. And if those qualities that greenness is then retained, you have the opportunity to grow as a population, to evolve, so to speak. Um, and that same algorithm really applies to technology as well. So you have um, the algorithm working on the available technology, which is uh, the initial conditions. It's about combining and recombining several technologies. Basically, the market then decides, is this new product, this new innovation, this mutation, a better fit for my current environment? And if those qualities can be retained, you uh, have a new population of that new product, that new version of the product that is being, um, uh, that will grow, that will push out other technologies. So in that sense, what they have in common is that process, which is mutation, selection, retention. All right. Now, why is it useful to understand that algorithm? So, you know, mutation, selection, retention, um, I can see how it applies to the technology, right? We have a base product. We introduce a couple updates. Some of those may or may not survive that selection, and then they're retained in future revisions. Um, but why is it useful to understand that algorithm as we go through developing technology? Well, I think when we look around us, uh, what we see is uh, innovation happening at a faster pace. We have digital transformation industry 4.0. Uh, we have the energy transition so what they have in common is lots of innovation and also lots of testing of those innovations, lots of pilots. And I think we talked about it uh, earlier, but for instance, McKinsey says that about only one in four pilots will achieve any meaningful scale at some point in the future, meaning that a new innovation is being tested and it has, found, it has been found to be useful. So we deploy it at a larger scale. Now, that also means that around 75% of pilots basically fail or are very slow to catch on, which is to most innovators basically the same. So we're spending a lot of money and resources on um, new introductions, new technologies that simply do not satisfy the need. That's a waste. So, uh, or that's largely a waste. I mean, there's some nuance there, but you know, surely yep. if we understand this algorithm, if we can use this model of how technology is evolving to better predict which technologies will catch on and which ones will likely fail, then we'll probably be at least somewhat more effective in introducing new technologies and reaping the benefits of all these innovation projects. So I, I think certainly in this age where we have this, you know, huge deployments of new technologies, it simply makes sense to think about how technologies will evolve um, to make better investment decisions. All right. So when we think about how it evolves, so we can better set those investment decisions, how we can better drive adoption, that type of thing. What influences the growth of technologies then? I'm guessing they don't just evolve based on, on someone sitting in a room. I'm, there's probably some sort of guides or rules or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, that that you, you have those initial conditions, your sort of your your set of available technologies that can be combined and so on. You have that universal Darwin algorithm, uh, you universal Darwinism algorithm, um, but it doesn't evolve in a vacuum. It, there's you know, it, it technology is part of a system, 
right? If you have a new widget to, to for a machine, that widget is part of a machine. Uh, the machine itself is part of a production system and so on. So you have the environment in which it is evolving. You have also, you have the laws of nature, uh, physics, you know, you can't, it, it's very difficult, if not impossible to invent anything that moves beyond the speed of light to name one thing. So you have this rule set of physics um, but also, I would say, uh, tendencies, right? I mean, um, what we tend to see is that uh, as a company, you typically want to make a profit, which means you want to make more money and reduce costs. You typically want to drive up your market share and you want to reduce time to market. Uh, you want to drive up retention of your clients and you want to drive down risks. So all of these sort of rules of thumb also have an influence on uh, how technologies evolve and they create some sort of tendencies. Um, so from the algorithm working within that rule set and within those rules of thumb, thumb you typically see that um, uh, because you're combining technologies in many, in many occasions, you create more complexity. And not, for, not the complexity you get from a user perspective, but simply a more complex product, right? And that complexity typically uh, helps it on the one end to, um, uh, to have more survival skills, if you will. A more complex product can do more things and is useful in more situations, yep. which, um, which simply elevates its survivability. Um, we also see, for instance, that most of these products become more efficient, more energy efficient over time. Um, I, uh, Kevin Kelly, for one, wrote in uh, What Technology Wants, his book that also touches on this, uh, on how technology is evolving, that the energy per square meter of sun is, you know, a thousand times smaller than the energy per square meter of a modern computer chip. Right. It's, I mean, I, I, I thought it was uh, revealing, so to speak. So, but you have certainly see this a tendency that it's on the one end more complex, but also is driving down uh, or, or is driving up energy per, or is more energy efficient. If you, um, what's more, I suppose, typically um, elegance as a way of elegance in terms of use. So usability, if you have a product that's easier to use, those type of products tend to survive more. They solve problems in a more elegant way, which also is related, I suppose, to complexity and energy efficiency. Um, and then I would say uh, better, smarter, smaller, faster, all of those kind of things factor into that equation. And, and why th that is meaningful, I believe, is because it informs the bets that we make. It informs the our bets on this technology is likely going to survive because it is more complex. It has more use cases it can solve. It's probably cheaper. Uh, it may be more en energy efficient. So all of these things factor into or, or are a result of that uh, combination, recombination of technology driven by that fundamental process of universal Darwinism within that framework of the what I would refer to as the top level rule sets, uh, chiefly um, uh, laws of nature, if you will. And then those tendencies that are a result of perhaps human nature of the economy and those kind of things. All right. So we have these top level rule sets, the laws of nature, laws of physics and so on and so forth. They're going to govern, you know, essentially the boundaries of this 
technology. Then we have these influences or tendencies, as you refer to them as, that's going to push and shape this technology within those rule sets to meet a market demand, a cost point, something of that nature. Yeah. Okay. So all these things are working together. That's a lot to take into account when you're trying to develop technology. It is. And and that's why I think um, that having a deep understanding of ideally the technology, the market um, is beneficial when it comes to predicting what's coming next, right? Because it's, there's a lot of sort of heuristics involved, a lot of sort of also information that you are not, I would say, aware of that, you know, but simply for being in an industry for a number of years that you sort of take into account that sort of drives the direction of your thinking. But I absolutely agree. And perhaps this is something that politicians should take to heart as well. It makes sense to have an understanding of what you're talking about. <laughs> we could go down an entire rabbit hole on that one. Yeah. Um, so where do you see these rule sets and tendencies in action? You know, do you have an example that you can kind of walk us through for this? Yeah, I, I love the example of the mobile phone or of the phone, right? So. Um, the, the phone was in, in uh, f- f- I, Alexander Graham Bell invented the phone in the sense that he, 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 he was, he's the one made famous for it. But because it's typically a combination, recombination of technologies, that same principle was uh, invented at exactly the same moment in Europe as well. But I forgot his name. So, you know, there's a, <laughs> there's a good reason for being first, I suppose. But I, I, I think the story goes that Alexander Graham Bell was, you know, an hour earlier with filing his patent, something like that. <laughs> the first phone, what it basically did was hardwire two phones together so you could talk. And then if you want to do that more efficiently, if you want to make it, and if you're going to make it more complex, then at some point you're going to have to be able to connect one phone to more phones via a telephone system. And in the early days, um, that that sort of that switchboard was um, was a, a human-powered switchboard, right? It, there were actual people that putting the plugs in, connecting two phones. So if you look at that system, and if you want to make that more efficient. Uh, if you want to make it more cheaper, you probably want to automate the switchboard. And that's what happened. Phones in the meantime got telephones, I should call them back then. They got smaller, you know, automated switchboards. Uh, we At some point we could send photos via our phones. Um, but as a testament of how, how the, the algorithm worked, at the time people thought there are better systems to transfer images. So that kind of died down. But, you know, the phone uh, learned how to send uh, faxes, which is an image in and of itself. Um, You know, at some point we got mobile phones, we got various networks. uh, And today the phone is not just a telephone. It's a mobile computer that has Internet, that has, uh, uh, you know, text messages. Uh, You can navigate using or, or you probably do navigate using your phone. So. Over that entire time frame, what we consistently see is this combination, recombination of technologies uh, moving towards more complexity, more usefulness. Um, some, some systems sort of die down because there is no market for it. There is no population to sustain those kind of things. Think of uh, the fax is probably almost there. Um, 
that that early phone in the 70s that could send pictures is a prime example of such an uh, such an uh, you know and and where the retention part is no longer satisfied and the yep. market doesn't select it as the best option and today um you know you still have some dumb phones that cannot use um um that that, that are you know that, that you can only use to to call people and those are actually more expensive right there is a market for it it is being retained but it's a bit more expensive so but sorry that's a bit beside the point the thing is it's a combination and recombination of technologies driving towards more complexity also more specialization you have several types of phones today um, and a higher energy density so all of this plays out in the development of the phone all right and you know thinking back there were certain aspects of phones that were there once upon a time that are no longer there you know, that would be part of that selection process, right? The market saying, you know what, I don't want the slide up keyboard anymore, if you remember those. Um, So they were not retained, right? They went in, there was mutation, selection didn't really work, so they weren't retained, those kinds of dissipate. Now, within that, is there, is that part of the problem why some of these pilots aren't successful? Is because we have certain selections or certain mutations in place that maybe haven't gone through the full vetting process yet? And that leads to some lack of adoption with technologies. No, I, th- I mean, I, I think it is. I think it is a, a part of the, the the core process. Is I mean, f- for some things to succeed, you're always going to have a lot of things that fail. And I think that's in principle a good thing. I mean, um, certainly when others fail, right? So <laughs> that's <laughs> as well. But um, the the point is, I think. I mean, um, um, the the no. Uh, Sorry, can you please repeat the question? Because I had a very good point. <laughs> yep. So, you know, when we look at deploying these technologies with the pilots, right? And we right. said one in four yeah. pilots fail. Is yeah. that because we have certain mutations that haven't been fully vetted and selected yet? No, I think it. I think it's simply part of the process. I think the the so. Um, Mutations are going to happen. You're always going to have a crazy inventor who says, well, let's combine, uh, you know, a a phone with a dishwasher so I can make phone calls with my dishwasher. Not sure if that one really happened, but there's going to be people who will try to combine things. And that selection process is um, is takes its time. For instance, in my experience, if you are a very enthusiastic guy or girl and you have a very great technology, you're going to find people who are going to want to give it a try. Certainly in this sort of in this startup world, uh, you know, there's always going to be uh, at least a couple of people you, you, you know, that hitch on your bandwagon, I suppose, is the uh, a, a useful expression here. And, and potentially, I mean, um, there's also going to be capital uh, invested by VCs or others that are going to prolong that um, that sort of that selection time frame, give it a chance to be selected. Um, that is, so it's it's not a very it, it it simply takes time the selection process to to uh, to work, and that okay. can be prolonged with lots of capital. Um, but basically, the the the, the it, it's it's part of the process. Yeah, I don't think it's 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 bad per se. Uh, it's only better if it happens to your neighbor and not to yourself. Yes, absolutely. This podcast is brought to you by Iridicio. Be sure to check out Iridicio's IBL blended learning for maintenance and reliability professionals. 
This SMRP accredited project-based curriculum will take you through all aspects of a maintenance and reliability program and provides you with all the tools you need to generate a 30 times return on investment for your organization and a set of credentials from the University of Tennessee for you. You can find out more at ibltraining.com. Is this evolution, you know, we're talking about phones, we're talking about technology, is it the same for physical products and tools too? They go through the same kind of approach or is it different because it's not digital or electronic? Now, I think, I mean, the core process in my view is is the same. There is a big difference and, and, and that difference is also the reason why we will see a much faster and faster and faster innovation moving forward because, um, Essentially, digital products are not shackled by physical constraints. Right? If you, getting back to the phone, if you want to launch a new type of phone, you have to actually make it, which takes time, a lot more time than to code it, probably. You don't have those physical constraints, not just of making it, but also of, of sharing it, shipping it, and so to speak. So, um, um, I mentioned Peter Diamandis, I suppose, in, in an earlier conversation as well. Uh, he is he's a technology enthusiast. Uh, and in his book, Abundance, for instance, he writes about the six Ds of uh, digitization. And, and I think that explains rather well how typically these sort of digital innovations, um, how they sort of happen and why they speed up the process enormously. And he says the first D of is when a project is being digitized, um, it, it, it then at first, the second D is it grows uh, disruptively slow. Uh, or, so, no, de- apologies, deceptively slow. Uh, look, for instance, towards Canon. Canon actually uh, invented the digital camera. They said no to it because the inventor who works at Canon at the time uh, showed them a 0.1 megapixel um, picture that looks pretty horrible, right? But yep. um, when things are digital, they uh, hop on this Moore's law, so they double in quality or lowering cost and those kind of things every eighteen months or so, right? So after you know a couple of iterations, you had a one, two, four megapixel uh, picture, which is you know arguably good enough uh, to show around in the bar or at home. Um, and at that point, um, after the deceptively slow um, um, growth, you get a disruptive phase, which is the third D, where the adoption accelerates because that 0.1 megapixel uh, picture is now a 4 megabit pixel. And then you have the all the benefits of digital um, that will increase the adoption of digital f- photography. Um, so... Uh, for instance, staying a bit closer to home, when we look at um, uh, our own work, uh, we, we deliver a condition monitoring technology where we analyze electrical waveforms uh, based on machine learning algorithms, right? And so um, in itself, condition monitoring started, I would say, around the 1930s with vibration-based technologies. And then um, over time, the sensors got better, um, uh, uh, analysis of that signal uh, was um, automated or at least aided by computers. Yep. Uh, next, you know, there's some meaningful changes in the fact that they became um, wireless uh, with Bluetooth kind of thing. So again and again, you see from a vibration-based perspective that things got smaller, 
better, cheaper, more energy efficient. And then at some point you had around in the end of the 70s, you had electrical signature analysis. And that was obviously the first versions were, uh, I would say, um, deceptively bad. You had to analyze them by hand. Uh, sensors were really expensive and so on. But because they focused on motors in the nuclear industry, that's a good business case, right? It's probably, you know, re worth your time to monitor assets in nuclear facilities. So, you know, people kept working on it. And then at some point for ASA, um, you had all these supporting technologies that became available, uh, cheaper sensors for one thing, uh, data acquisition devices became cheaper. You had cloud computing, which enabled processing at very large scales. You had, um, you had um, uh, uh, algorithms that improved in, in sort of what they could do and the quality of the output. So it, it became a viable alternative. And what you tend to see, so I would say that in our field, we, we have digitized um, the manual inspections of current and voltage from the 70s into an automated system. Takes a while for it to grow. It's, I mean, I would certainly say it's still in this deceptive phase, given the fact that, you know, there's not, you know, you have hundreds of mil, well, yeah, I suppose a lot of vibration-based systems, and this is still quite small, but there are certainly for some markets, this will become disruptive. So we have digitized, deceptively small, it's becoming disruptive. And then the next phase uh, is it will become uh, dematerialized. And what that actually means is that for the, for, the, for, the, um, uh, for the phone and the camera, it means that that camera that we referred to earlier is now integrated into the phone. So in that sense, I mean, you still have a lens, but it's largely dematerialized. You basically have a phone that can take pictures. So that camera function is decoupled from the camera physical object, but more integrated, dematerialized into a phone. For ASA, this will happen with uh, variable speed drives, clearly, right? I mean, what an ASA system needs is compute, it needs sensors, and it needs communication. All of that is available in the variable speed drive. So obviously we're you know we're working on this, but then you have the ASA system dematerialized into a variable speed drive, and then at some point it will become so cheap to deliver it will essentially become demonetized. So you know future variable speed drives will be just as um, uh, cheap or expensive depending on your viewpoint if they are smart, if they're a VFD with a PhD relative to not smart VFDs. You know, it, yep. it's simply the way things work. And then ultimately it becomes democratized in the sense that all VFDs will have a PhD in electrical signature analysis. So that same process of digitization, hopping on to Moore's law, doubling in speed, cost every 18 months or so in that uh, deceptively small growth, moving into a disruptive phase where it will disrupt a market or a niche then becoming dematerialized, um, demonetized, and democratized. That is how digital technologies tend to evolve. And that is unshackled from physical constraints and therefore goes much, much faster. So we're in for a treat. All right, perfect. So got a couple of questions for you that came out of that. Yeah. So I'm guessing 
the fact that, you know, electronic or electrical signature analysis, vibration, ultrasound, all these technologies are complementary to each other. Yeah. Because of that, it's not one technology developing all these different pieces, uh, cloud computing, the AI. We're able to learn from these other technologies and leverage it to accelerate some of the growth of the ex- of the new products. Is is that true or? Absolutely, absolutely, and 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 it is again. It is also part of how technologies evolve. So, and that combination, recombination of all of those technologies is almost by driven by an invisible hand is exploring all the available possibilities of technology, whether it be AI and vibration, AI and ultrasound, AI and ASA, cloud, you name it. Um, so all, everything is going to be explored. And when there is a market for it, which essentially means that if there is enough demand and if the combination of those technologies, that new invention or that product, if you will, um, can be delivered at a better price or at more value than it costs to produce, then that's you know, likely going to stick around. And, and when you look at um, 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 focusing on monitoring of industrial um, motors and, and rotating equipment pumps and so on, not all pumps are created equal, not all situations are created equal. So different scenarios have different best uh, technologies to monitor their condition. And there's always going to be a market for, I suppose, everything that's around today will be around for the next years or for, you know, for the for a very long future. Absolutely. Yep. They co-evolve and they coexist because there is a, um, there is a, the, 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 the market supports their existence, so to speak. All right. So with that, I- the AI side of these of this or machine learning side of this, right? I'm guessing that's going through the same sort of evolution and we're relying on these predictions to make decisions about our equipment, right? Mm-hmm. So if we're uploading our electrical signature analysis or vibration analysis, it's looking at the trends, it's determining that, hey, potential issue here or you're fine, whatever it may be. There's gotta be some underlying assumptions at least to set some of that up, I'm guessing. Now, what if we got some of those assumptions wrong or we're still early in the evolution and they're not quite right? Well, you know, my assumption and the reason why we started working on, uh, in particular, ASA technologies is that that we we think that all machines will eventually become smart. That um, that so so our assumption on betting on ASA, if you will, is that um, the when you look at what the market wants in, let's say, five to 10 years from now. That's a good time frame because most of you will have forgotten I said what I'm going to say, right? So unless I'm right, then I'm going to remember and, and refer back to it. But I think as a general trend, I like to think of uh, some of the market forces that are driving evolution of technology are at the core uh, reliability. I really believe that if your machine doesn't work, what's the point of having it, right? So I think reliability remains one of the key concepts in monitoring no doubt about it and and maybe it's even you know a moot point to make um <laughs> i think another driving force is sustainability um you know just open up any annual report and i bet you on page one or two it's the ceo that says you know one of our key initiatives is is driving down CO2 emissions or becoming more sustainable. And rightfully so, 
right? But it only um, uh, flags how important that topic is and will remain for the foreseeable future. So there's another assumption. Sustainability will remain very important. I think uh, a third element, and, and if you think of this in terms of a, a hierarchy of needs, a Maslow hierarchy of needs, uh, you have reliability, sustainability, and then things like product quality, um, um, but also, I think, uh, flexibility. Uh, and I think uh, my key assumption is that um, flexibility will, um, will largely determine, certainly in heavy industry, to a much larger extent than today, who's going to be successful and who's not. And the reason for that, I think, is that um, if we are right that machines are becoming smart, that they can make um, um, more complex decisions on their own, but also as part of a network of other smart machines, then we'll, we'll, they will be able to, be, to respond dynamically to the environment. That's for one thing. But they will also be able to uh, self-optimize and to self-sort of organize. And what's interesting is that uh, my another assumption for me is that what we'll also see gradually changing is the shift from a, um, I would say, an instruction-led production paradigm where the automation layer that orchestrates uh, these assets that collectively are your hot strip mill or are your production system, right? Because basically we have a bunch of rotating assets producing stuff. Um, but and, and today that how they go about producing stuff, how that thick slab of steel is turned into sheet metal and coiled up at the end of the production line is determined by an automation system that has a set of instructions. And uh, typically the operator is the one that's going to change those instructions. And what also true is that um, the um, uh, uh, most production processes are pretty much set in stone, or at least to a large extent, right? You cannot call uh, ArcelorMittal today and say, um, I want to order steel in very small quantities of these and these qualities. They have their, you know, they have their production systems and this is how they are programmed to be. What I think is changing from a flexibility point of view is that we shift from that sort of that uh, fixed production step process to more a, a goal-driven process where the goal is determined by your uh, client order that says, I want the steel to be somewhat thinner and I want it in blue instead of you know steel color. Then that order will inform the machines that work together, that are context aware on how to produce that steel. And not only that, they can also say, I want to optimize for energy use or those kind of things. So all of these assumptions factor in to um, why we work on ASA. We believe that, um, um, that, that uh, condition monitoring remains highly important, no matter how you do it, but you know, it's an important element. Sustainability will remain at the forefront of you know, innovation, of, of um, uh, company goals, and that sort of a flexibility type. And if all of those assumptions are right, then electrical signature analysis is almost by definition the way to go because it is the most elegant, the most uh, energy efficient way to actually achieve all of those things, which is reliability, um, sustainability and flexibility because it allows you to detect failures. It allows you to measure performance and energy efficiency on a highly granular level. And it allows you to control the speed and torque 
of that motor, which determines the quality and qualities of the steel, right? How they are being processed. If any of those assumptions is wrong, it could mean that we sort of fail. Um, what's also possible is that it will not move beyond, you know, a very niche, niche product. Um, and ultimately, there could be something that's not yet out there that will do all of those things massively better. Um, and, and the result of not being right in assumptions uh, can be simply that your uh, child, as I like to refer to our product, uh, <laughs> is no longer around. Uh, that, you know, that, that, that there's no, um, no ecology to sustain it. Yep. Now, we have these assumptions that we're making, you know, sustainability, reliability, all these different things. But there's, um, there's always something else. Mm -hmm. And whether it's randomness, or, yeah. um, you know, just the wrong thing happening at the wrong time, that type of stuff, how do we overcome some of that? Or what is the role of that in this development of the technology? Well, I think, I mean, I think a very good example of randomness is the COVID, um, uh, the COVID pandemic, right? We, we only recently see, seen that, 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 well, it may, to, to some people, it will not have been a random event, but it certainly was to me. So that has an influence predominantly on the ecosystem within which your uh, new invention or your technology evolves. So that will probably have a, um, an effect on uh, adoption rates, on retention, on selection, those kind of things. And I think um, randomness is, um, I think Nassim Taleb called it the black swan. So you have on the one hand those black swan events, those once in a lifetime things that are highly improbable, therefore discounted and as a result, highly disruptive. But also some other things may be random. So I think the point is to, to always uh, keep an open mind as to um, how you are evolving, how you're developing your product and, and simply accepting that to stay in the game, so to speak, to be selected, to be retained, you need to be flexible enough to adapt to randomness ev random events that cannot be foreseen. All right, so the key is having that flexibility then. You overcome the black swan events, you overcome Murphy's Law, if you will, where if something yeah. can go wrong, it will go wrong. Yeah. Um, so we have to have some flexibility to overcome those types of barriers then. Yeah, I suppose you are absolutely right, yeah. All right, excellent. So if we do all this, we get a well-evolved piece of technology. Yeah. Sounds simple. Well. <laughs> I think, I mean, I like to think of it as a model, right? Uh, it is a model of thinking about uh, the future, yep. if you will. Um, and, and you know, the, the map is not the territory, right? So you can map it out in your mind, but then you have randomness. Uh, then you have all these sorts of other things. So I don't think that, that if you do this exercise within your industry, with your deep domain knowledge, then um, I, I'd like to think of some of the concepts that you come up with as uh, probabilities, really. I think it's probable that ASA will thrive, but I'm not 99% sure. Yep. I'm, you know, I think it will do well. But it, so, so think of it in terms of probabilities. Uh, it helps you to make better bets on the future. And if you're really sure of something, then the upside potential is probably very high if you're right but you probably will make some mistakes along the way and you'll probably meet some randomness events so or random events. So in that sense, 
I think the usefulness of um, the model is is that it gives you some sort of toolbox to think about it. What are you know what are some of the uh, physical constraints that sort of you know uh, under which uh, that are part of the rule set? What are some of potentially the um, um, the uh, economical constraints? Uh, what are some of the tendencies? What 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 is the most efficient, most elegant way I can solve my problem within that rule set, given the initial conditions and given the um, the universal Darwinism algorithm? But ultimately, it is simply about making better decisions, better informed decisions. But they may turn out wrong anyway. Yep, there's always that randomness, right? Yeah, exactly. So. So, Simon, we've walked through how technology evolves and, you know, I've never actually thought about how this happens, why things happen the way they do. And you definitely shed some light on it, as well as where we think, you know, electrical signature analysis is going or the potential behind it. And, you know, that's that's pretty exciting when we talk about how these pieces can start working together to make those types of decisions. Um, And with that, you know, what what do you want our listeners to take away from this conversation today? Is it just awareness of how this stuff evolves or how we want to be thinking about things in the future? You know, what is it? Well, at the core, I think it's just a really cool way of thinking about uh, technology, thinking about evolution. Uh, You know, it it, it provides sort of a framework for, um, I would say, uh, it it provides constraints also in a productive way. Uh, And, you know, I simply love technology. I love how it evolves. And when you have this model in in your mind, you can look at some things a little bit differently. It makes sense why the mobile phone and the camera, you know, why they converged, uh, given that the that that algorithm. But also Peter Diamandis 6D framework. It's it's it starts to make sense. Uh, so I think that's simply um, uh, simply something that I enjoy, and I hope the listeners will enjoy it as well um and i think ultimately also you know it it's it makes sense to have a framework when thinking about the future and if i mean i don't think we aim to op- we should opt for a hundred percent correctness it's simply not possible but also you know consider twitter you know if 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 you would have applied this framework to twitter i wouldn't have invested in it because i would have think thought well you know who's going to use that and I think that there's also a case today that maybe nobody should use it, but uh, I suppose that's another discussion. But sort of, you know, it, so it, uh, first and foremost, it's about it, it provides a framework for thinking about how technology will change and how it will apply to you, your industry, and so on. Um, and I think that's, that's some, simply something that I benefit from, and I hope others enjoy it as well. All right. Excellent. I like it. How can we leverage technology? How do we think about technology in the future and how do we get engaged with it? Yeah. Well, Simon, where can people find out more about you, events, activities, websites, all that good stuff? Where can they find out more? Well, we we have our own website, uh, samotics.com, S-A-M-O-T-I-C-S.com. Sorry, you know, it's much easier in Dutch. (laughs) Um, some and we 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 generally post white papers and 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 articles and those kind of things also on linkedin where we're quite active we have a twitter account but it's not utilized to its full potential yet but uh, i suppose our website and linkedin are good places to start all right excellent and then i know you mentioned a couple great resources already but are there any resources you want to share with our listeners yes 
So, um, I mentioned him before, but Kevin Kelly's What Technology Wants is a great book. Um, another book I also, I think I mentioned before is Abundance by Peter Diamandis, where he has his 6D framework. Yep. Um, recently, I caught up with John Zeman's technology, technological innovation as an evolutionary process, which is a, um, a surprisingly accessible textbook written by um, predominantly uh, pr professors around the globe. Uh, and, and they go into how, um, I would say, how nature mimics technological evolution and vice versa in, in many ways. Um, and then a fourth book I wanted to mention today is uh, Pascal Bournet's Intelligent Automation. Um, he, I think he paints a, a vivid picture of what the future will look like um, in, in sort of in this intelligent automation space. Um, right. Yeah, so those are the resources I wanted to share today. All oh, right. One last thing. Pascal Bournet has an excellent newsletter as well. All right, perfect. I will put all of those in the show notes so our listeners can access those links, your website, your LinkedIn feed, all those different things so you can make sure that you know they can access these resources, learn more, and not just about how technology is evolving, but how electrical signature analysis is evolving, what we can do with it, maybe some new options out there like you guys are offering. Um, so you can connect with that and learn more. Fantastic. Well, Simon, once again, I want to thank you for taking the time today to chat to us about how technology evolves. Um, there's a lot more to it than I thought, and I can see how this greatly plays into, you know, the capability gap stuff that we talked about previously, some of yeah. the adoption rates that we see with technology. You know, it's all starting to come together when there's, it's a complex system. It is. It is a complex system, but uh, very interesting as well. Yes, absolutely. Thank you again. Thank you, James. Take care. I would like to thank you for listening and remind you that you can always find out more on maintenance, reliability, and asset management at www.iridicio.com and by following our blog. The Rooted in Reliability podcast is a proud member of the Reliability.fm network. I'd like to ask you to please rate and review this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. It ensures the podcast stays relevant and is easy to find by like-minded professionals. It is only with your ratings and reviews that the Rooted in Reliability podcast can continue to grow. I thank you for providing this small but critical support. We'll see you next week when we dive into another burning topic with Rooted in Reliability, your plant performance podcast.